Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've got uh, two more weeks left of Romans 8. Uh, we are at this sort of crescendo uh, in Paul's argument at what God has done uh, for us in our sin. And he's said from the beginning that there is a righteousness that comes through faith. There is a way for us to be right with God that's through faith apart from the law. That God has a comprehensive answer for our sin. That when we were guilty and therefore condemned before God, He justified us, pardoning our sins and making us righteous in His eyes because of what Christ has accomplished and it's received through faith and faith alone. That, that God did that so that you would be reconciled to God. But He also answered the power and enslaving corruption of sin by sending His Spirit to, to dwell with you and to empower you and, and to persuade you to follow the Lord, to give you uh, endurance in the struggle against sin and, and a weapon that's sufficient to meet even the, the effects of our sin so that the power of sin has its match in the Gospel as well. And then because we are ashamed, because we feel as outcast, and because sin feels like a stain, and we say, I don't belong, God says, you're my child. I've adopted you. You belong in my house, at my table. You are with me now. And you fit. It is God's comprehensive uh, plan to address our sin. And then... The, the passage we're going to read today starts with this. What then shall we say to these things? In, in light of that, and God's purpose to conform you to the image of Christ, what does that mean? How do we apply it? What are some conclusions we can draw? That's what we're going to read about today. Before we read it, let's pray that God would bless the time we spend in His Word. Our Father in Heaven, we do pray that You would... Be merciful to us as we read what you have preserved for us uh, through the ages. We pray that you would cause us to understand it, that give us your spirit to apply it, and that we might have hope and faith and repentance because of what we read. We pray that Christ is honored as he is shown to be a great Savior by your word. And we pray that you would nourish and feed and grow and make healthy and strong your church. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, verse 31. This is God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's Word. It is completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. When I was six years old, I remember this day very well. It has marked me for life. We had a, a, a part of our front porch that was set up on a brick foundation and had cement on the top and it had an overhang of maybe an inch or two. And it was the perfect little spot for wasps to, to start their little nests. And there was one forming there and I'd seen it from the yard. You know, when you look back and you can see that spot that's sort of hidden. And I'd seen it and I knew it was there, but on this day I had forgotten. And as I approached, talking to my mom who was on the front porch, I had just leaned against it like this, putting my hands there, and I got uh, close enough that the wasp wanted to uh, ask me to move. And at age six, the pain was intense. I have, since that day, hated, no, I have a fear of bees. Can't stand them. I'm so terrified of them that if one gets in the car, I have to get Karen to come get it out. I can't do it. Uh, people will see me and how I respond to them and say, are you allergic? And I'm like, nope, just afraid. Terrified, really. And I've heard people, you know, even among this congregation who work with bees, talk about getting stung and act like it's no big deal. And I have to, I have to fight the urge to drop my jaw. And I just can't do it. Uh, now, i tell you all that to tell you. About two weeks ago, we had a little wasp nest forming at one of the doors at our house, and I walked out of it, and again, the wasp felt like I was too close and stung me right here on the head. And, and it hurt, but not nearly as bad as I remember. I mean, I didn't like it. It itched and bothered me, but it wasn't nearly as bad. And, and it dawned on me that perhaps, just perhaps, my fear of bees is irrational. And if I were to bring my irrational fears from my childhood experience and my logic and thinking as an adult, I could, I could stop being afraid. The problem is, I keep bringing my irrational fears and say, eh, I'm just going to keep being afraid. I think we do the very same thing with our souls. That we have these, well, irrational fears. And what we have is, is God who is our Father, who works all things together for our good, who determines to make us like Christ, and says, I am with you. He told Joshua, because I am with you, be strong and very courageous. Don't be afraid of anything. I am with you. That we could take our fears, our insecurities, our doubts, and put them to rest. We have the resources from God's grace that lets us answer every little doubt we have about what God thinks of us. Here's how this works. You'll have a, an experience of pain or suffering, a misfortune that hits you, and it will hurt. And then the, the first thought that enters into your head is, why? And we start to answer it with this question, maybe God isn't really happy with me. Maybe God is dissatisfied with something going on with me. Maybe He's angry. Maybe all this talk about love and grace isn't real and I've got to do something. 
and we start to doubt whether or not God could really love us like we want Him to. Or, instead of some suffering, some sin in our lives. You know, I've, I've got this temptation and I want to resist it, but I don't and I give in to it and I fail again and I've confessed it a hundred times and I'm showing up to God again and I'm thinking, there is no way He's going to forgive me again. This sin is really treachery against God. It's rebellion. And how could God love someone who's in such rebellion against Him? And I begin to question, is it possible for God to love me if I'm doing what I'm doing? Here's what I want to do. I want to give you some tools to answer those doubts. I want you to see that Paul gives you five questions to put in your pocket. Five questions that you can carry with you so that when those doubts arise, you can ask them these questions. Now, when Paul writes them, they're rhetorical questions. And rhetorical questions are great because you don't have to answer them. The answer is supposed to be obvious. Look at the first one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, a rhetorical question, you know the obvious answer. No one. If God's for us, no one can really be against us. But what does that mean? I want you to remember back from your Old Testament and Bible story days, some of those great stories. It seems like a lot of them were about battle and war. You remember the king of them all, David and Goliath? The great giant of whom everyone was afraid? And David walks out, runs to the battle line actually, because he knew God was with him, and therefore this man could not stand. And of course you know the story. Goliath doesn't stand. God was with David. He gives him the victory. But let's do a couple more. One of my favorite stories is found in Second uh, Kings. Assyria has already conquered much of Israel and it's come with 185,000 soldiers and cut off Jerusalem from every supply. There's, they're camped outside, 185,000 soldiers against a city that might have had 40 or 50,000 inhabitants, men, women, and children. The odds are overwhelming. And, and the blockade has been so effective that inside the city they're reduced to even cannibalism. It's awful. And one night, God sends the angel of death into the camp and he destroys all 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The next day, everyone in Jerusalem eats the spoil of their victory without lifting a sword. That they're eating like kings the next day after they had been uh, satisfied with eating anything that would be digestible the day before. God was their strong champion. The odds of 185,000 against the city were nothing because if God is for you, who can be against you? All right, now my favorite story of all that's like this. Uh, Elisha, the prophet, had been warning the people of, of Israel about the attacks of Syria. And so Syria found out about it and sent a, a detachment of their army to surround Elisha's house. And Elisha's servant Gehazi walks out one morning and he looks and he sees they're surrounded by enemy soldiers. Now his experience, what he sees, he does what makes sense. He panics. He, he, he sees they're surrounded and it's trouble from every direction. Elisha prays God open his eyes 
And then Gehazi sees what was there the whole time. In the entire countryside, there are angels in fiery chariots with swords drawn. And so the surrounding Syrian army is actually surrounded by a bigger, badder, much more terrifying army. And Gehazi relaxes because God is for him. It doesn't matter who's against him. The answer here is really obvious. But putting it into practice is sometimes really hard. Let me ask the question, of whom are you afraid? Who causes you fear? I'll tell you one of the places where I feel it is because I feel like some people have you know, power and influence over my life and therefore I want to walk the fine line and, and gain their approval and be impressive to them so that I can gain the benefits of their approval. One example of that might be my colleagues in the ministry. Uh, these guys seem to, at least feel like to me, they have some influence over how my life might go and my career and, and things like that. And, and so as I go to Presbytery and meet with them four times a year, I drive down with just a little bit of nervousness. As we have times for us to pray together, I'm always thinking, how can I pray in a way that will impress people? And I recognize that's pharisaical and it's awful. You see how my fear is driving me to sin. Uh, and for the record, what I frequently try to do is say, okay, look, if, if my motives are so mixed, let's just pray quietly. But it's hard to do. I, I want to be impressive and I want their approval and I'm afraid of what they'll think of me. The Bible says that those men are made of dust. And that if God is for me, it doesn't really matter what they think. Can you imagine how much freedom it would be for me to be able to believe this as I go sit with them? Can you imagine how much freedom you would feel at the places where you are afraid? Places where you are concerned about what people think? If you could believe, if God is for me, what does it matter what they think? Um, there's, a, there's an unhealthy way to say, I don't care what somebody else thinks. It gives us permission to be uh, tactless and rude. You know, it looks something like this. You know, people, uh, you always know what I think. I'll just tell you. You'll never have to wonder what I'm thinking. And what that usually means is I'm giving you uh, my excuse to be rude when I say whatever I want to say on my mind. Uh, I don't care, you know, kind of thing. But the, there's a healthy way to say what another person thinks isn't what ultimately matters. And it frees me to work out my own salvation. It frees me to trust the Lord, to say, if God is for me, then that other opinion isn't the, the driving force in my life. And it scatters fear. So, so here's what I want you to do. As you find yourself afraid of what an employer thinks, of what a neighbor thinks, of what someone in the church thinks, of, of whoever is in your life, as you're afraid of them, I want you to pull this question out of your pocket and say, if God is for me, who can be against me? The second question is, is similar. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the answer is obvious again. How will he not give us all things if he gave us his son? Obviously he will. He'll give us everything. Let me 
explore it just a little bit with you. God, who says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who, who even more strongly says, the earth and everything in it is mine, this God who sovereignly rules every resource in all of the universe said, you need my son to rescue you and I won't spare my son, whom I love. The Son who has been the object of my affections for all eternity. I won't spare Him, but I'll send Him to rescue you. Now won't this Father who rescued you from your sins at a much greater cost, won't He take care of your future? This Father who clothes the grass with flowers and makes it beautiful, who feeds the birds of the air, won't He who didn't spare His Son for you give you everything else? You see... The doubt we have here is worry. God, I'm worried about what my future is going to be. I'm worried about whether or not this job will provide for me. I'm worried about my retirement and my future. I'm worried about my health. And I'm worried about what suffering might come. I'm worried how my kids will turn out. I'm worried about... You finish your sentence. Don't you hear what God is saying? If I wouldn't spare my son... Don't you think I will take care of your future? What will that look like? Sometimes it will look like God providing financially just where we thought He would, through jobs or, or through savings, and, and, and we'll have the standard of living we had hoped for. God gives that. Sometimes it will be God providing unexpectedly, so we lose the job, we lose the savings, the stock market doesn't work out, and now when we enter into retirement, we don't have as much as we think we need. So God gives us the resources we need to live smaller on a lower standard of living with the same contentment and thanksgiving. God sometimes provides health and we enjoy it with thanksgiving. Sometimes He provides endurance to bear the suffering of affliction and illness. You could see God is already ahead of you in your future and what you need there, He will provide it. And so you take your worry. God, I'm worried how this is going to turn out. And you ask you this question. If God wouldn't spare His Son for me, how will He not give me everything else? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to be able to put a charge on you? Uh, you know, something that says, not fitting, not belonging, Guilty, should be cast out. Who's going to be able to do that? God says, I've put my sign of justification on them. I have given them forgiveness. I have cleansed them of their sins. I have accepted them as my child. Who's going to make a charge stick when God says that? Who's going to be able to look into your past and say, oh, look at this. I bet nobody knew about this. I want you to think about what you hide what you hide from other people, what you're afraid someone will find out, I want you to take that to this question and say, God, if, if, if something happens, if this is found out, if I even bring it up to you, I'm afraid of what you'll think. And God says, who's going to bring a charge against my elect? Against my child? Against the ones I have chosen and I have justified? Who's going to make it stick? And the next question is similar. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died and is raised from the dead and is interceding, asking for us of the Father. 
pleading for grace and mercy and getting it. Alright, so I want you to think about the places where you feel guilty. The places where you feel ashamed. And I want you to bring it right here to these two questions. I want you to bring that guilt, that disappointment, that frustration, the places where you have failed and say, God, will you justify? I don't want this charge to stick. And God says, who's going to charge my life? I don't want this condemnation to fall on me. And God says, look, it's already fallen on my son. Who's going to condemn you? I've already taken care of it. How about this? What if you hear this sermon and you're like, my problem is that I know I'm not supposed to be afraid, that God is for me, but I'm still afraid. You bring that fear to here and God says, well, I won't condemn you for your fear because Jesus died for your fear. And, and, and I'm full of worry and I can't seem to break it. I know that you'll give me everything, but I'm still worried. It's so hard. Jesus says, bring me your worry. I'll die for that too. I stood condemned for your fear and worry. You won't. This is the gospel. The gospel that says where you have doubts about God, He has a question for you to ask those doubts. Are you afraid? God says, if I am for you, who can be against you? If you are worried, God says, if I wouldn't spare my son, how will I not give him every, get along with him, give you everything else? If you are feeling ashamed or guilty, he says, ask this question, who can bring a charge against my elect? And who can condemn? Jesus already died. And then he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the obvious answer is, no one and nothing. God has set his love on you. And it is a steadfast, unending passionate, enduring love. And no one can dissuade God. And nothing can keep Him from it. And your sins, which you already had when He put His love on you, aren't going to make Him change His mind. Nothing in all of creation will stop God from loving you. Um, Brian Chappell uh, tells in a book that he wrote, uh, The Grip of Grace, he tells of how his wife thinks about her worries and her sins and her fears and, and these things. She says she thinks of a, of a cabinet with a lock on it. And in it are all the sins and all the failures and all of the worries. They're all locked inside that cabinet. And every time she finds a new one, it goes to get put in there and locked away from view forever. And she has a key that opens it up so that she can open it up and put that fear, that worry, that sin in it. And on the key it says, mercy or love. Love is the only key that will open up that block. And when you put that in there, you shut it and love locks it away. The love of God locks away every one of these failures, every one of these doubts. And so I want you to put in your pocket these questions so that when you don't feel loved, you say, what can separate me from the love of God? Nothing. What is it that can make me afraid? God is for me. What is it that can make me worry? God gave me His Son. Won't He give me everything else? What is it that can make me feel guilty and condemned? Who can charge God to let? Who can condemn? Jesus died. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us question our doubts and find the security of faith, the security of knowing your love is on us forever. And that it means we can bring our fears to you and see them cast out. We can bring our worries to you and watch them crushed by your generosity. We can bring our guilt and our shame to you and watch it wiped away by Jesus' death and life and by your accepting us in him. Your love is better than life itself. And we want it more than anything else. Would you quiet us with your love? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.